thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. This is Up for a Chat with Cindy O'Mara, Karen Smith, and Kim Morrison. up for a chat about the hottest topics that are important to you, inspiring you to awaken the change within. I'm Karen Smith. I'm Kim Morrison. And I'm Cindy O'Meara. And we have somebody very special on today's podcast, and I'm going to throw to Cindy in just a second. But we've got somebody who has, um, Cindy has found, it's almost like she kind of it was kismet. It was meant to be at a place where she went in search of other people. She found Ben Stockwin. So, Cindy, I'm going to throw over to you because I could probably go through all of the stuff that I've been researching about Ben today, but I think you're going to do a much better job of it. So go ahead and introduce Ben for us. Ah, thank you. Um, yes, Ben and I met. Oh, welcome, Ben. Um, we're really happy to have you on the show. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. Wonderful. So I met, Ben and I met, I was looking for, as I was telling the girls, I was looking for somebody who I could talk to about Roundup and glyphosate and all our listeners know I've got to be in my bonnet about it. But anyway, and I didn't find a minister, but I, I found Ben and I found Ben's story um, absolutely fascinating. So Ben at the, at the moment is Chief Executive Officer for the Primary Industries Education Foundation of Australia, which we will be talking about. But what I found really fascinating is that Ben spent his time as a teacher um, and principals in Queensland and Tasmania, but what he did in one of the schools in Tasmania is what um, just blew me away. So what I'd like to do, Ben, is I'd like to, first of all, ask you the question of why did you become a teacher in the first place and what led you to do what you did in that Tasmanian school? Yeah, thank you. And I think it's a great way to start because I think that story behind how I became involved uh, really has helped shape the, um, the work and the direction of the foundation in particular. It was a, was a very nice fit. So in terms of, of what, um, uh, why did I want to become a teacher, I think uh, same as many young idealistic young teachers about wanting to, to make a difference, that sense of social purpose. Um, yeah, the, the holidays and working conditions was also a pretty good advantage too for a, a lifelong surfer. So a whole range of uh, a whole range of uh, different different things. And uh, I found myself uh, initially starting teaching in Tasmania, and then I spent uh, a good half a dozen years or so teaching and working uh, on the Sunshine Coast, which, uh, as you very well know, is a is a beautiful part of the world. Before I found my uh, my way back down to Tasmania, which is where my food and fibre journey began. Yeah, and it, it did. Um, it was a freedom fighter journey. So let's talk about your experience um, as a teacher um, and then principal. Are you, were you a principal of the Tasmanian school? Yes, yes. So my, my, the, the, I was, my first posting was at, at Clarendon Vale Primary School, which is uh, one of the um, uh, most socially disadvantaged schools in Tasmania, if not the country. Um, the most disadvantaged school was one I became principal of a, a couple of years later, but I'll talk about that, that shortly. So um, that was an acting position, but my first full substantive uh, position was Bruny Island District School off the south coast of Tasmania. Now, Bruny Island is a, is a place that has uh, recently become very well known. Uh, back then, it was probably biggest claim to fame was that it's Australia's southernmost school. And then later on, we had things like the, the Gourmet Farmer and a couple of other TV shows really brought it to prominence, not just because of its beauty and its location, but also its strong connection to food, which 
when I became principal wasn't necessarily apparent down there. So when I was appointed to be principal of Bruny Island School, I'd, I'd spent some good amount of time growing up there. My grandparents lived there uh, for a little bit of time. I just thought I was going to a beautiful part of the world with some fantastic surf. But when I got the, the tour of the school, um, the outgoing principal who I knew gave me the tour of the school and was showing me the ropes, so to speak. And she told me, you can do anything you like with the school, just don't, just don't get rid of the sheep. Her parents were sheep farmers from Hamilton, Victoria. Um, the school had four hectares of farm around it and she decided to put a registered Hampshire down start on the farm. So as well as bringing on the title of principal of Bruny Island District School, I also took on the title of Studmaster of Hampshire Down 177. I was very, very pleased with that title and I wanted to get the title Studmaster put on my card next door to the uh, word principal, but unfortunately the education department wouldn't <laughs> let me, so I just uh, just got good mileage out of that with my friends and so on. <laughs> what, what, struck, what struck me about the school when I first got there uh, was that all of the students there were reaching any kind of benchmark you could actually put into place. So the kindergarten development check was, you know, the, 100% of the students were, were meeting the needs there. The prep check, most of the kids were getting there. It was certainly above state and national average. The year three, the year three NAP plan, the year five NAP plan. So all testing indicated that these students were going, you know, really well. Predominantly they came from very caring, very uh, engaged homes. Uh, who they were coming to school with, you know, fairly high levels of literacy and numeracy and some good world experience as well. So the community and demographic of Bruny Island was, is absolutely fascinating. It's, um, it's a very uh, cosmopolitan and very diverse community. So roughly we have about a third of the, the population of Bruny Island, or back then were third or fourth generation islanders, predominantly involved in the primary industries, in some kind, either directly farming themselves, the salmon farming around the island, or some forestry operations on the island. We had another third, for want of a better phrase, were, were alternatives or, or hippie types, uh, either from Tasmania, but there was a, a large portion from, from overseas, particularly uh, Germany and, and Austria. Uh, and another third were... Uh, an increasing demographic, which was uh, independent sea changes. So people who had made their fortune or made a, a career where they could work anywhere in the world. So I think this was at the advent of, you know, of the internet age and so on, where we had uh, world-renowned architects uh, basing themselves on the island with satellite internet so they could do up these fantastic plans and then fly out once a month to go and do a site inspection and so on. So a very diverse, very engaged community. Um, obviously, being a, a young principal wanting to do well, I was paying a, a good deal of attention to the data in the school and so on, so I could report back and, uh, and say everything's going well down here. What struck me was that even though the students were performing well, it was their value-added data and their value-added results uh, which, which weren't particularly good. So what that means is in kindergarten prep, they may have been in the top 25% statewide but by the time they were leaving in year six, they'd gone down to the top 40 or top 50%. So whilst they were still, you know, passing all the checks and, and up to year level standard, they'd started well ahead of their same age peers across the country. But by the time they'd finished, that gap had closed somewhat, which uh, led me to believe that what the school was adding over their seven, eight-year journey through the, through the primary school section of the school 
wasn't necessarily adding much value to them. So we undertook a whole school examination of, of why that why that might be. And what really occurred was that you know we had this fantastic resource, which was the island outside the the classroom doors, which wasn't really making its way into the classrooms. And so we centred the the school, started a process of centering the school curriculum firstly around the four hectares of school farm and then beyond into the into the school communities. So by the time I'd left four or five years later, the whole curriculum was centred around what was going on on the island and what was happening around on the school farm. So for example, uh, we had uh, chooks that we, we raised eggs from, we had the, the school kitchen garden, we had uh, the Hampshire Down sheep, of course. We also had a low-line Angus um, stud as well. Uh, and we even raised uh, raised pigs for slaughter. So that made its way into the curriculum in, in lots of different ways. The more we looked at it, the more we realised we could make what we had to teach the students, you know, really relevant by giving them something really meaty uh, to dig into. No pun intended there. Um, so, for example, the Year 3 and 4 maths program, uh, for one term of their year three, four years, there was measurement where they did nothing else apart from every single day they would weigh every single individual egg that was laid by the 24 chickens. So you could work that into maths by obviously weighing, talking about grams, talking about total kilograms, looking at averages, looking at the variance. You wouldn't believe how much variance there is between eggs from a single chook. Uh, we even took a, we even made the mercury at one stage because we found a triple yoked egg which uh, came in at an astonishing 200 grams, which was um, uh, quite quite amazing. So that that was um, that, that was quite interesting. Um, through to the Hampshire Down sheep start, obviously the students prepared the sheep for show, and there was a lot of all of the. Um, animal husbandry, the animal welfare, looking at diet, nutrition, uh, the needs of animals that came in through science for that. Um, but stud sheep being stud sheep, it's all about the, the breeding. So the students started to research all the sheep stud books uh, from the mainland and looking at which Hampshire Downs were winning the shows and so on. So we raised some money through the sale of the eggs to buy in some Hampshire Down semen called straws um, from the mainland. So the kids selected and decided which ones they were going to buy and so on. That was flown down especially in a special little modified esky with these sorts of things. And we found a really accommodating vet who would come down and uh, artificially inseminate our, our eight sheep, which in itself was quite fascinating because the, the vet being quite understanding, um, put in an extra scope. So all the year six students, of which there was only eight handily, um, could actually explore and, and look through one of the additional scopes. So they actually could see live um, the sperm being inserted into the egg of a live sheep and the miracles of IVF occurring right before their eyes. So uh, that also took care of the sex ed component of uh, the Year 6 group as well, which was uh, quite fortunate. Um, we started to incorporate philosophy and ethics into the school as well. We made that a, a through line throughout the whole school as well because obviously, you know, being in a diverse community and looking at primary industries, there's uh, many diverse views. And one, of, one such view in the community was about whether, you know, we should be raising animals for, for consumption. So when we first started to discuss bringing in uh, pigs to raise for, for slaughter, we turned that over to the senior class, the year seven and eights, to turn that into a, a good philosophical debate. So we had 
vegetarian and vegan parents, which was probably about a quarter of the school cohort were identifying as vegan and vegetarian. We had the parents come in and, and talk quite, uh, you know, logically, clearly and impassioned about why we shouldn't eat meat. We also had, you know, the ex-groundsman, Buffy, who was now the island abattoir, as well as doing dozens of other things, come in and talk about, you know, what, how he raises animals. And uh, one of the points that he raised was that we can't decide whether whether people um, eat meat or not. We can't decide what, what individuals do. But what we can control is is how we look after the animals when they're in their in their care. And that really resonated with the, with the students, and I think, to use uh, to quote Buffy, the, the ex-groundsman, I think the way he um, he put it was, you know, I look, I love looking after my animals because happy animals, happy animals taste better. He said, I look after my animals and they have one bad day. So that swayed the um, the year seven and eights, and so he decided to uh, to purchase uh, three or four slips, and they were raised for the slaughter. And we had students look after them, and I'd have to say they were probably some of the best uh, best pigs that have ever. Um, uh, best, best, most uh, very well looked after. We'd have students going down at the lunchtimes, talking to them, taking for the walks through the neighbourhood and so on. And when they did go off to have their one bad day, there, there wasn't a, a tear shed in the school because we knew it was coming and we knew um, that those animals were, uh, were, were very well looked after. We started to connect with some of the industries around the island. So we've got a range of, of companies who were looking at... Um, you know, obviously salmon farming around the island. And so we were able to get students on board boats above these these farms and with divers going to the pens and around them and so on with cameras on their backs so they could actually look what was going on. Because many of them had obviously had seen the pens outside uh, in the waterways and had uh, and uh, many of their parents were employed and so on, but they had no idea what was actually going on out there. So that was a quite a large area of, um, of connection. So that was... Uh, that's many of the activities that we did. And um, by the time that I left, that value-added data that I talked about um, had gone from double below average to double above average, which got myself as an educator thinking about, you know, how important it is to, you know, make a curriculum relevant. At this stage, I hadn't really become passionate about, about food and, and fibre as a context and so on. It was, for me, it was still just about educating, you know, students and so on. My next, uh, my next school was a, was a larger school, which was um, statistically the most disadvantaged school in the state called Gagebrook Primary School, a, a housing commission area in the northern suburbs of, of Hobart, uh, where it wasn't uncommon at lunchtime to have to bring the kids in at, at, at playtime because of the sounds of gunshots in their neighbourhood. I remember once we had police come around at about 2.30 and say they were just about to do a raid uh, of a house just down the road from the school, things could get messy. So, could we please keep the students in for an extra half an hour? Which, uh, of course, we had to say yes. But you can imagine how well that went down. Um, that school, you know, we had it was a it was a very close community, very um, very engaged parent community, uh, very supportive. But in a lot of cases, uh, it was difficult getting students to attend the school, let alone engage in any kind of. Um, of learning program and um, the things that we take for granted around literacy and numeracy just weren't apparent in that in that community. So again, we had to get very creative with how we were going to engage these students and 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 drawing on my experience at Bruny Island, we did the same sorts of things. These schools were designed in the 1970s based on plans from inner city uh, schools uh, from the United States. So they were actually designed to be riot proof apparently so there was there were designs so there's no central area for anyone to congregate 
So, but as a result, we were gifted with these wonderful internal courtyards, which we turned into to mini farms. One of them became became a, a garden. One of them became a more chooks. Uh, and one of them became uh, you know, a mobile space where we would have people bringing animals from time to time for students to engage with. And again, the successes we had with that educationally were, were phenomenal. And everything from, from growing things, from seeing things grow uh, from a seed with soil, water and light, that became the science program, the literacy program, the chook program became the, the math program again, as well as the art program. Uh, using all of the things, the feathers, stray feathers, eggshells, all of those sorts of things, as well as uh, giving them things to draw and, and sketch because a lot of these students, their referential background was, was very limited. So in terms of what they had to draw on in a school-based context, it was really limited. Um, when we analysed uh, students' writing within the school, what we were finding is a lot of the, the writing was retelling of what they'd seen on television in the movies. A lot of the students didn't have any real life experience outside of watching TVs or what they, um, what they did at home, uh, so their writing was, was very limited. But what we found is that when we have a student who's holding a, an, egg, an egg that's still warm and wet from having just been laid, you know, they've got plenty to write about then, you know, the emotions, the feelings and, and all of that uh, is very apparent. Uh, all the way through to students who had come to us with um, extreme physical or sexual abuse who were using uh, local animals, such as cows, for example, for large animal therapy. We had um, one girl in particular who was nonverbal when she came to us, but she would engage with a therapist through a cow. She would pat and talk to the cow and look at the cow and talk to the cow, and so there was this um, you know, three-way conversation going between the cow, the therapist, and the, and the student, and... Uh, you know, that was just something that was that was really effective. And it was, you know, about this time I slowly got the message about what a fantastic context uh, food and fibre is uh, for education, not just to educate students about where food comes from, but from an educational sense as well. I just, I, it brings tears to my eyes. You know, it did when you were telling me about it um, at the Organic Awards and, you you know, you just clarified exactly um, what's needed? We need to get back to back to basics. Um, yeah. As one of my favourite mentors says, we have to get back into the kitchen to feed and nourish our family to heal this nation. And it sounds yeah. like you've taken it that one step further. We have to get back to where our food it comes from. How is it grown? And um, and I love that you you know you did the maths with the eggs and the the variables and the statistics. And you know it makes it more realistic for the you know, for the students. Can you mm. tell us some stories of, you know, you've told us one story about that beautiful girl that began to communicate um, with the help of the cow. Can you tell us some other stories that are really standing out in your mind that um, changed the children's lives? Well, to take it to the other end of the, the scale, and I think, yeah, I guess before I launch into that, it was about this time that I, you know, saw an advertisement in the... Um, Weekend Australia, I was just flicking through it, looking for something, uh, you know, just reading the paper and I saw an advertisement for the first board of directors for this thing called the, the Primary Industries Education Foundation, a national national not-for-profit that was being founded with the support of the, the government and industry. They were looking for a skills-based board of directors with education, industry and governance experience. And, you know, I guess being still young and brash, I put my hand up for it and um, uh, knowing that, a lot of these uh, things are very well run and very well intentioned, 
But the missing link in a lot of them is they have no ideas how a, a school operates or, or what pressures a, a school is under. So anyway, I was, I was interviewed and spoke very passionately like I've just just done now, and I still remember, though, the last question the interview panel gave me, which was, uh, would you care to comment on the current state of corporate governance in Australia? And I remember just laughing and saying no. But then I managed to do some very quick thinking and say, well, it's a skills-based board, my skill is in education and so on, and that's when I was appointed to the board and then later jumped off the board into the role of CEO, Mm. which has allowed me to see fantastic examples, not just all over Australia, but also overseas as well. So I guess two, two examples that, that jump out. First one is, um, it was a case study that was written about in the New South Wales parliamentary inquiry into, into agricultural education. And um, they were interviewing the principal of James Rouse Agricultural High School, which is the school that always tops out on the, the league table, the My Schools website that, you know, it always has a lot of debate about it, but consistently it's the, the highest performing school statistically uh, in the country. Um, now, the, when, the, when, the, when the principal was being interviewed, they said, well, look, you're a selective high school now, you're a selective academics high school, you don't take students basically unless they've got an IQ of 140 and already high performers. So, you know, what does it, what does it matter? Because... You know, you're, what does it matter if you're an agricultural school because you're, you're selecting the cream of the crop, people who aren't from farms, people who are unlikely to go and work on farms, you know, and then the, the principal contended, well, there's six other selective academic high schools across New South Wales, and she said it's because agriculture is a compulsory subject from year 7 to 10 why we uh, consistently top out. And the story that she told was that they have students who come to them who are consistently you know, incredibly high achievers, always 100%, everything's perfect, they're very, you know, OCD, you know, everything's lined up and perfect. But when they take them out to the garden, first of all, get them to grow their first crop of something and either their crop doesn't grow or they pull up a carrot that looks more like a J instead of being straight, it's the first time that student hasn't had something go right for them It makes them go, oh, that didn't work. And it's the first time that there's been, they've been challenged. And it's that real-world challenge, the principal contended, that deepens their everyday learning and gave them the edge because they've got to take the knowledge they've learned in the classroom and apply it to a situation that not only is real-world, but is also uh, it contains many, many variables. And, you know, you get dirty. You don't always get a perfect product, even if you follow the instructions. So that, that's one story. The other story, a story from overseas, we had a, a national conference uh, a couple of years ago and we had a, uh, a university lecturer from Japan who works at a, a, an all-women's, uh, sorry, works at a, um, an educational teacher college uh, just outside of Tokyo. And one thing that he's really passionate about is addressing nature deficit disorder. You know, he recognises it's a Western societal problem um, it's incredibly linked, linked to all of this food and fibre context, the fact that we're becoming, having a generation coming through who is really divorced, not just from the source of their food and fibre, but from nature itself. Uh, here were a, a crop of, you know, 20-year-old uh, university students and graduated through university. Um, the first practical lesson he took was how to establish a garden to get your kids growing things in the garden. Three quarters of the students refused to be engaged in the activity, didn't want to do it. He nutted none of it down. Three quarters of the students had never actually touched dirt before. 
Oh, wow. And the misconceptions and the misunderstandings about what would happen if they touched this earth was absolutely astounded. And it was from then he went on a real mission and now he just specialises in, in training teachers around this, this, this varying concept. So, yeah, that, that, that's quite an astounding uh, concept. And when you look at, you know, fighters not just, not, not just from Asia but also increasingly from Australia as well where we have, you know, individual bananas wrapped in plastic on our supermarket shelves so they don't get dirty, um, you know, you start to realise that this is more than just about where food comes from. It's about our very relationship with nature. Oh, I just love what what you've been saying because you're right. Um, when you go into a grocery store and you grab the fruit and the veggies and whatever else, the packaged foods and whatever's there, you don't really have a full understanding of what has happened. And with me growing a lot of my own foods now, and, and because I was brought up, you know, in town and I wasn't a big grower of foods, but I've started to do that now. And I actually am in awe, like I pick the oranges from the tree and then I notice there are buds ready for the new oranges for the next year already starting and you become a little bit more in awe of what Mother Nature has as opposed to going to the grocery store. So, Ben, can you tell me um, about the Primary Industries Education Foundation? How many schools are you in? How Mm -hmm. do schools find out about you because I didn't hear, like not that I'm in the school system anymore because my kids are all, you know, adults um, and out of school, but I didn't even know you existed. So how do schools find out about you? Um, How many schools are you in? You know, just give us all what's Mm. happening in your industry at the moment. Yeah, look, it's a a bit of a tricky one and it's sort of, um, so I guess it's the very nature of the foundation. So initially we were established as uh, a strategy rather than a program. So uh, a stock take was undertaken around 2008, 2009 uh, by the, the federal government about what was actually already occurring. So as we were getting established, you know, quite sensibly from, for, for government for a change, we were, let's, let's see what's already out there. So they commissioned a, a stock take about what was already out there. What came back was a list of over 200 separate programs, resources, activities, organisations, all engaged in teaching kids about where food comes from but most of them were unaware of each other. There was an awful lot of duplication going on and so on. So uh, then the, that's when, you know, the concept of the foundation as a facilitating, coordinating body was, was first born. And certainly in the, in the first instance, that's, that's what we've done. We've been able to try and get a census and a map of who else is doing things in this space, how we can make their programs more discoverable by schools. So how can we promote the work of others? And then where we've identified gaps, you know, commission projects to fill those gaps. So one of the one of the gaps that you know we found initially was well, obviously with two hundred separate activities and initiatives, that's two hundred separate websites. You know, how do teachers find out about these two hundred things? How do they know about them? So we developed and launched uh, a website called Prime Zone, which is our uh, our key web portal for teachers. So for us, uh, we've set that up as a one stop shop for teachers to discover curriculum-linked classroom resources that they can download and deliver in their class tomorrow that meets their science requirements, their technology requirements, their geography requirements and so on that have food and fibre as a a context. So about a third of the content 
on Prime Zone is content that we've developed where we've seen there's gaps in the curriculum. Uh, the other two thirds is, is content from, from anywhere else. So everything from Meat and Livestock Australia through to the Stephanie Alexander Kitchen Garden Foundation, we link all their resources through there. So teachers just have to remember one word, Prime Zone, go to the resource and find that. But schools being a very crowded marketplace, it's, it's very slow burn. So, yeah, we, we try to engage with, with uh, teacher associations through national conferences. Uh, we work through our own networks and so on. So approximately now we're in about 1,050 schools across Australia uh, and there's about 9,500. So we're happy with uh, over 1,000 schools. That's quite good for, a, for an intervention program such as ourselves. Um, but, yeah, we're not going to be happy till we're in in nine and a half thousand schools and uh, and have teachers using our resources, but it's certainly increasing. Um, in two thousand and seventeen, we had around nine thousand teachers uh, visit our Prime Zone website. Uh, last year, we had a little over thirty thousand teachers visit our website, uh, who downloaded over three hundred thousand individual resources for use in the classroom. Which uh, mm-hmm. yeah, we're very excited about. We've recently taken on uh, the running of a website called Career Harvest which is looking specifically at the type of careers that people can find within the industry as well as scholarships to to help get them there. So most people are surprised to learn uh, that nearly half the careers within the primary industry sector, so ones that are considered primary industry careers, are actually urban-based jobs. Increasingly, they're highly uh, science, technology, IT-based uh, roles that you know most people don't even know existed. So the, one of the largest, uh, two areas of largest growth in the sector in the last five years um, is around um, drone management and precision agriculture. So looking at drones, looking at GPS technology, uh, as well as, you know, looking at international commodities and so on. So Australia's uh, industry does fantastic uh, in terms of the export market uh, to get, you know, what is a relatively healthy, nutritious and and clean product into markets where, where they can't do the same job themselves. So we produce about enough food every year to feed around 20 million people in Australia, but we export enough to feed around another 90 million. But it's the technology that we develop in Australia to make agriculture more efficient uh, that we export to other countries that, that allows those countries to feed upwards of another 400 million. So that's allowing uh, countries who otherwise wouldn't be able to do it to be able to feed more people using less water, less soil, less land and so on. Um, so we're starting to build, obviously, those sustainability benefits in there as well. And it's those high-tech niche jobs that are the uh, the jobs of the future and the ones that we really want to, to promote to students. But ultimately, if a school student can get to year 12 and appreciate where their food has come from, we consider our job done. If more of those students want to come and work within the sector, then that's fantastic as well. But, but ultimately, it's around uh, that connection with nature, connection with food, and appreciating what's gone into to getting food on their table three times a day. Ken, can I ask you, there is, you, you made a comment just then that your enterprise creates enough food for 20 million people. Did I hear that right? Uh, the Australian agricultural okay. sector. Yeah. So if that's the case... Then, and we can feed 90 million people internationally. Mm-hmm. Why is there such an issue around hunger and, and agriculture? And why are people so adverse to um, more sustainable fa- farming and, and the farming that Cindy is constantly on about? What, what, is the, what is the dilemma here? Why is there an issue when you can prove this already with such a small enterprise on a scale? 
Yeah, well, look, it's, it's, it's really many and varied, and I think, you know, we, we're getting to the, uh, the outer limits of, of my knowledge and experience. Um, but, look, globally, certainly, certainly in Western nations, it's not a case of food production that's causing hunger. It's food distribution. Uh, it's close to 50% of what is produced in Western nations is either thrown out or rots. Uh, it's getting it to where it's, it's needed is such a um, is such a large large issue, and again, that's uh, that, that we find that across Western societies as well. It's the now whether that's actually consumer demand, whether that's um, supermarkets, companies trying to second guess what consumers actually want. Um, if a carrot's not straight, if an apple's a funny colour, if an orange has got blotches on it, uh, it doesn't find its way onto the supermarket shelves. So there's a whole deal of food wasted. Uh, even looking at you know, your own home. Uh, you know, the average, the statistics around, um, you know, how much food is thrown out by, by uh, each household, you know, is quite alarming. I don't have the exact figures in front of me, but I know it's quite alarming. So that's why we've seen, you know, the growth in recent years of fantastic work for organisations like Oz Harvest and, and Food Bank that's giving that food that would otherwise be um, uh, wasted, you know, a second chance at, at being able to, um, to feed those without, uh, without, access, without adequate access to food. I'm just intrigued. I mean, I find everything you're saying, uh, my favourite thing at school, and that was quite a long time ago, and I don't know if the girls all remember this, but when we put a bean a bean in, a, um, in soil and we watched our beans sprout and then we watched it climb and then we watched it sprout beans, I mean, that was one of my, my favourite things that happened at school. So... Um, it still is, and it's amazing how how much that still resonates with with school students to be able to to be able to do that. But somewhere along the line, yeah, that that's that's either stopped being taught or or it's uh, it's 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 slowly starting to pick up again. Because you know, I was in a in a classroom uh, at the end of last year where a teacher had done that it was quite innovative. Had put them inside, was recycling the students, you know, the Ziploc plastic bags, putting a wet piece of paper towel in there along with half a dozen seeds, zipping the the bag up again. And sticking, pasting it to the uh, the classroom window, and you can see that the roots go down, the shoots go up against this wet paper towel, and the kids were just amazed. It was like a miracle happening before their very eyes. <laughs> That's what we had. We had a plate and cotton wool, and the seeds put on top, and then we watered it every day. And we didn't even need soil, and it grew. So it was, I think, it was wheat grain. So mm. I remember that. And you're right that. That was absolutely fascinating to see <laughs> that grow. Yeah, it, and one it, of the one of the things that I find really, uh, re, you know, really reassuring. I mean, you hear so many things about how students are addicted to screen time and and all of those sorts of things. Yeah, it's still though at, at all levels of the schooling, it's still that hands on stuff that still resonates with students. Students love getting their hands dirty. They love seeing seeing nature and seeing things grow. And um, I don't think they'll ever get tired of it. I want to go back to what you were talking about before about making the curriculum relevant and fun and interactive. I'm, I'm just a little bit intrigued within the school system. Now, I'm not an educator. I'm not a, as in a teacher. Is it hard? I'm sure like in anything, in medicine and in education, there's good people that have real noble intentions around education and interactive um, activities with the children and really wanting to expand their minds. But my feeling that I've had through a number of teachers that I know is it's very hard for them to change the curriculum or to add something to it 
the feeling of it's not broken, so why fix it kind of mentality or this old school mentality of uh, this is the way we're doing it now. Is that something you come up against given you've only got a 1,000 out of the 9,500 that you want? Oh, look, absolutely. Yeah, when, we, when we're talking about teachers changing their practice, we're really talking about you know, cultural change and, and cultural change is the, the hardest change to, um, to enact. So, yeah, we, we're grateful to um, yeah, the, the work we've done with the curriculum has paid off and you know, organisations like New South Wales Farmers and a range of others have assisted us in, um, in, in getting that to occur. Um, so in terms of the curriculum, so what a teacher's accountability is and what they, what they have to teach is, is their set in stone and it's up to every teacher in school to determine how that's delivered. So uh, in the first, first year of compulsory schooling, which uh, is called foundation in the curriculum, but depending on which state you're in, it's either kindergarten, prep or, or grade one, uh, we start to see... Um, you know, concepts such as the needs of living things, using farm animals as examples, introduced into science in those areas. So looking at soil, air, water, light and so on as the things that sustain all kinds of life. Uh, as we move through the curriculum, it becomes increasingly more uh, complex. So, say for example, by year seven in geography, they're starting to look at water usage and one of the units within that is actually looking at uh, competing water usages in the Murray-Darling Basin, for example. So starting to get up to some pretty, you know, pointy-ended, contestable type of, you know, concepts that students have to do a good deal of research about to get into. And by the time they're getting to Year 10, they're looking at really complex stuff around biomes and food security and so on. So looking at, you know, all the whole range of issues globally that's going to affect um, humanity and, and food supply in the coming decades and everything, everything in between. So that's the curriculum. The next challenge is making sure that, number one, there's resources that can support teachers to deliver that curriculum. Uh, and then secondly, that teachers have the knowledge and confidence to be able to deliver it. And that's the slow burn stuff that, that takes a lot of time because uh, if there's anything worse than a teacher not delivering this context, it's a teacher delivering it because they have to or a teacher delivering it with, you know, quite a biased, you know, perspective either, you know, pro one way or pro the other rather than, um, you know, a, a balanced factual approach. So that is slow burn stuff. We find, like with all interventions, some teachers are early adopters. We'll see the, see the um, uh, potential and jump straight on it. Other teachers will adopt more of a wait and see approach and uh, wait and see how another teacher goes with it. Uh, and other teachers will just do what they've always done. But, you know, that's the, the nature of teachers and, and individuals and it doesn't matter whether you're in a classroom or somewhere else, there, there always seems to be those kind of attitudes. So, yeah, we, we're doing the best that we can and, and think that we're making a pretty strong case for it. Um, but obviously the more uh, word we get out there, the hopefully more converts we can have. I think that bias that you talked about with um, teachers can sometimes be, you know, be an issue, especially, um, for instance, if, you know, a farmer's child is at the school and they're listening to this and they're thinking, well, that's not how my dad does it. And I think Kim's got a really good uh, explanation of this with her son. Um, Kim, would you like to share the story about your son and a teacher and margarine? <laughs> um, 
well, you think that they don't listen to you at home, Ben. And anyway, <laughs> he texted me and said, Mum, I've got a detention. Don't be angry. And, of course, when I picked him up, I said, what have you done? What have you done this time? And he goes, don't get angry, but Mr. Let's just call him Mr. Smith for now. Um, yes. Mr. Smith, um, I challenged Mr. Smith on his beliefs around margarine and then I, I kind of, my ears pricked up and I said, what happened? And he said, well, Mr. Smith said that low fat eating and something like margarine is much better for us than butter. But I stood up and said, I didn't agree. And Mr. Smith told me to sit down and then I interrupted him again. I said, but sir, I would rather trust a cow that's been around for 10,000 years <laughs> than, than a, something that's been made in a laboratory that's one molecule off being a plastic. <laughs> and um, and Mr. Oh, I nearly said his name. Mr. Smith <laughs> said, "Jacob, I'm 25 years of age. I think I know what I'm talking about. Sit down." And Jacob turned around and went, "Yeah." And excuse my listeners' ears, this is bullshit. <laughs> and um, and he sat down and unfortunately got a detention for it. But I, I patted him on the leg, Ben, and went. Don't, don't worry about that one. That, that was a good one to get. <laughs> I, I, I think we've probably some of our uh, some of our members from the from Dairy Australia would probably love to uh, love to speak to your son and give him a a, a, a pro, an award. I think. <laughs> I reckon. I reckon. Well, considering he's just finished school and looking now for what he's going to do, maybe maybe that's either that or law. I thought he's such a good argument uh, arguer. Let's <laughs> uh, uh, point him in the direction of career harvest, and uh, we'll see what we can do. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I ben, think it's amazing, Ben, what you're doing in terms of um, bringing that education to the kids and making a difference in their lives. That's the part that, you know, I've been sitting here listening to everything and taking everything in, and it's, it's quite amazing how um, the contribution that, that that education is actually making to the quality of the kid's life. You know, it's not just about education so much, it's about the quality of their lives, which is to me, so astounding that without it, the quality of life suffers, but with it, quality of life is enhanced. And that obviously means that their future is looking brighter for them. You know, they have more self-confidence. They, they feel like they're a little bit more connected to the things that are real. You know, the, the, the psychological impact of that physical uh, act that you guys are engaging with there is, is profound. Mm. Oh, look, I completely agree, and that's that's the wonderful thing, you know, about this role is is not only the work that the Piper Commission specifically, but uh, the work that we advocate, uh, you know, other people's work that we advocate as well. Um, I'm fortunate enough in, in many, many, many other organisations, there's, there's so many passionate people doing some wonderfully creative things. So, for example, we've got you know, a young lady in Victoria who you know, engages students in their story. Um, through Lego, she uh, runs a, a page called Little Brick Pastoral or the Lego Farmer, and uses you know these little creative little figurines and stories and so on as a way of engaging engaging students. We've got you know uh, another um, passionate advocate who who gives students a a chance to you know engage in public speaking and confidence and starting to build up all of those soft skills you know through advocating for for farm life and farming and much like your, your your son's story, so it's um it's a it's not as I said I think as I said earlier it's more than just about where food comes from. Yeah, absolutely. 
Well, Ben, you have been such a font of knowledge for us and we know that, you know, the podcast is coming to an end. How can our listeners follow you, reach out to you, learn more about what you're doing? Where can they go to, to join your journey? Well, best place to go to is, is Prime Zone. So if you just Google the website Prime Zone or Career Harvest, both of those websites have sign-ups for our, our newsletters. Um, and there's also contact details on there as well if they, they want to know a little bit more. We're always happy uh, to directly engage with, with schools. We've got um, resources that we can send out to schools that can help us in, both implement it both at a classroom but also a whole school level. Uh, and we're always happy to, uh, to provide support to, to teachers or schools that are uh, interested in doing this. And if um, you're, uh, you, your listeners are a parent of a school who doesn't do this type of thing, make sure uh, you go in there and tell them about Prime Zone. So primezone.edu.au. That's it. And it's prime with a P for Peter. Yes. <laughs> nice one. Awesome, awesome. Well, thank you so much for being a part of today's show and sharing your journey and all of the wonderful work that you guys are doing. I see here on your website that you're a charity as well, which is wonderful, meaning that you're for purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think that that's magical. And I, I, I think I speak on behalf of all three of us we wish you so much success um, and, and so much sustain, you know, sustained success so this work can continue on into the future and impact more and more lives. And Thank you for just, taking that initiative. Can we just give a high five to Tasmania? Just Tassie seems to be absolutely kicking <laughs> goals, aren't they? Oh, my gosh, are they ever? High five, Tassie. <laughs> Love it. I'll pass it. I'll pass it on. <laughs> <laughs> So thank you so, so much, Ben. For all of our listeners, hopefully you guys have loved today's podcast. Make sure that you go and check out primezone.edu.au and just check out what's on the website there. And if your kids are going to a school where they don't have those sorts of facilities, maybe it's time that we reach out to our principals and see if they can do, you know, if they can implement some of these strategies for our kids to make a difference in their lives. So if you've got any questions or comments, head on over to allthews.facebook.com forward slash up for a chat. You can also post your comments and your questions at allthews.thewellnesscouch.com forward slash up for a chat. And join us here next week on Up for a Chat where you get to become part of the ripple effect that's changing the world. We're going to see you on the ride. Bye for now, everybody. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.